3: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders also a successful author his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart.
4: And welcome here to the latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, as always, you can join us, as the announcer uh, mentioned, uh, you can join us online. Uh, you can ask questions over in the chat room. I see a few folks over in the chat room. You can ask questions there. Uh, you can also call in, as the announcer said, at three four seven three two four. 3080 or you can email us today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start the show with page 1 news. Uh-huh. I think it's impossible to start the show today uh, by not mentioning uh, the obvious, and that is big changes are uh, likely afoot for the nonprofit sector under the new Trump administration. Uh, There's an article today in the Chronicle of Philanthropy that we will uh, be tweeting out uh, after today's show. Uh, The charity officials are preparing for hard-charging Republican leadership that vow change at stake are tax deductions and tax breaks that encourage billions of dollars in giving, and legal limits on nonprofits' political activities, for starters. So it's unclear at this point, as the article uh, points out, um, exactly what direction. There's conflicting um, notices in terms of whether or not the president-elect is going to uh, seek to cap all deductions, which, of course, Suggests that there will be um, a reduction in charitable giving in the United States if that were the case Um, But they've also suggested that they would not put a cap on that and uh, and instead with uh, tax um, deductions uh, or or rate reductions um, that could um, erode some of the effect of uh, donations being made to nonprofits so unclear at this point. I think one important point that is made um, in some of the articles that have been written recently is that whatever change might take place is going to take time to get through Congress. Um, So it's not clear whether or not the changes would necessarily take place in 2017 uh, or might take uh, place in 2018. Um, Certainly things like block grants um, contributions and support Uh, for nonprofit organizations, those seem at stake, um, and uh, unknown but likely to be big changes to the tax code, Um, it's unclear what the effect of that uh, will be. Um, Today on the show, we have as our uh, page uh, two expert, uh, Penelope Burke will be with us. Uh, She's going to share information uh, from the 2016 Burke Donor Survey uh, Report, but next up here, Uh, On the Nonprofit Coach, Uh, I want to bring in, uh, first of all, Jen Bokoff is here with us. Um, She's the Director of Knowledge Services at the Foundation Center. Uh, But, Jen, you've got a couple of friends with you and some important topics to share. Uh, So, hello, first of all, uh, to Jen Bokoff. Hello.
1: Hi, Ted. Thanks for having us.
4: I'm going to bring in your colleagues, uh, Maya Winkelstein, who is from Open Road Alliance, Uh, And Gabby Fitz, um, who is the Foundation Center's Issue Lab service. Uh, And Jen, you're going to walk us through uh, what all of you are up to today with today's Foundation Center Minute.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Ted. Um, and just to maybe transition from your very appropriate introduction, I think we've been talking a lot at Foundation Center about how, especially in light of the election, our work is more important than ever, where we want people to have a place where they can come to really understand how to access resources that are available to them and equip themselves with knowledge that they need to advocate for different issue areas that they care about and to have conversations that are grounded in research and data um, and so, That's kind of Foundation Center's position on the recent election, and and I think always. And so just want to underscore that most of our resources are free and easily available. And so what we're going to talk about today is one example of a project that we've pieced together to inform people on a topic. And this topic um, is about risk and risk management in philanthropy. So if you want to follow along for the next couple of minutes um, at home while you listen, the the website, and we'll say it again at the end, is riskandphilanthropy.issuelab.org. Riskandphilanthropy.issuelab.org. And we're, we're issue tweeting website. that
4: out. We're tweeting that out right now for anyone who didn't get that. So follow us, uh, twitter.com forward slash Ted Hart, and you'll have that link.
1: Thanks, Ted. Um, so, so this risk and philanthropy collection—it's one of the special collections on Issue Lab. Again, freely available, and the idea behind it was to see what the field, what the sector is actually talking about when they talk about risk and risk management. Um, and so, we partnered with Open Road Alliance, um, which is where Maya is representing um, on this project, and Gabi from our Issue Lab team really led a lot of the research. So, what we're hoping to do is I'm gonna actually pass the microphone to Gabi who really led this research so that she can share um, a little bit about what we found and also what we didn't find and maybe put that in the context of why open knowledge matters. And then we'll turn it over to Maya so that she can give us a little bit more on the broader context of how Open Road Alliance is shaping the conversation around risk and risk management in philanthropy and why this collection was a logical starting place. And we'll make sure to connect that to how it matters to you and what you can do with it as well. So, Gabby, let me turn it over to you.
2: Great. Thanks, Jen. And thanks again, Ted, for having us today. Um, I really just want to take a couple minutes to talk a little bit about um, this collection in particular and um, sort of what we hope to accomplish always with these kinds of collections. Um, We worked closely with Open Road Alliance and with Maya um, on trying to answer a question that they were asking, which was, how is philanthropy even talking about risk? Um, You know, it can seem at times like there's a lot of talk about risk, actually, um, but we have, you know, a remarkable body of evidence and um, a remarkable, um, remarkably documented body um, of work, really, from nonprofits and foundations that takes the form of lessons learned and case studies and blog posts um, and evaluations and white papers. Um, it's work that we're surrounded by in many ways, but it's also spread far and wide. And so sometimes it's hard to answer a question like, well, what do we really know about risk, what's being talked about when we talk about risk, and how do we talk about risk in philanthropy? So what we did with um, the support and collaboration of Open Road Alliance was really what we call an evidence scan. And so we went out, and after sort of honing um, the research question, you know, what do we mean by risk? Um, what kinds of work do we want to include? What sorts of voices um, do we want to make sure we're we're including here? Um, We went out and really scanned um, the existing knowledge base. So that meant going, um, you know, to some of the larger um, philanthropy schools. It meant going to the Issue Lab collection itself, which is an open-access collection of the literature produced by nonprofits and foundations. Um, And it meant going to the websites of organizations and foundations who had either published something about risk or um, had received a grant related to risk management. So um, that search, that wide search resulted in about 70 publications, um, all of which we then poured through to try and understand what are the patterns and themes and how philanthropy is addressing this question of risk. And, you know, what we found was it is being talked about actually and, um, and there's a lot of discourse about risk, but that, it, that discourse kind of groups into a couple of important categories. And unfortunately, um, the smallest amount of discussion is happening around really how can nonprofits and foundations in particular manage risk on the ground. Um, so there's a lot of discourse at the level that's probably familiar to most um, listeners and to you as well, Ted, that's sort of um, at the level of the kind of unique role that philanthropy plays and its ability to take quote unquote, big risks. So a lot of blog posts Uh about that. Um, a lot of case studies, a lot of sort of, you know, be bold, take risks, um, fail fast, um, a sort of rhetoric. Um, but unfortunately it wasn't matched with, um, a lot of on the ground counsel about how to actually mitigate and manage risk. Um, there is an interesting sort of third body of um, evidence that we found and discussion that we found um, that was around really framing risk in terms of return on investment, so sort of really the social investment literature. But again, for risk that's maybe harder to quantify, um, programmatic risk, reputational risk, um, again, a real shortage of literature on that topic. So. Uh, you know, I'm going to hand it over to Maya in a second, but I I think, you know, it, we learned it's these kind of evidence scans do a couple things for us. The first is that they really show us where the gaps are. Um, they show us where we need to learn more. That literature may also exist, or that discussion may exist, but it's not being shared openly. And so the gap may be that we need to share it more openly. What we're learning about risk, um, it may be being produced, but we can't find it. Um, And if it's not being produced, I think there's a real need for it, especially in um, the kinds of changing conditions and environments um, that you open the show with. Um, And then the last thing I just want to say is that, um, you know, I think this work of stopping and saying, um, before we proceed, what do we already know as a sector? You know, we're a sector that's so rich in knowledge um, and taking a moment to make sure that we find um, what's already out there. So, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to hand it over uh, to Maya to share a little bit of her and Open Roads' perspective on Maya, on where to go from here. Before you
4: start, yeah, Maya, if, if you don't mind, before you start, if I can just make a couple of comments for uh, our listeners. I mean, first of all, this is really brilliant and I think very, very timely, uh, as you as you mentioned, uh, because certainly risk in philanthropy is a topic that not only managers are looking at. Uh, but I just did a quick search for what you have in there for board of directors um, who obviously have a responsibility to be looking mm-hmm. uh, at risk and managing appropriately, and there are nine uh, studies that are in your, um, uh, in your, your scan here, um, specifically mentioning the role of board, board of directors. So uh, I think that's important, and Maya, if you can also, um, just in the couple of minutes that, that you have, put this in context of um, something else important that's going on today, and that's Giving Tuesday.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, thanks for, for having me on said. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the larger context from Open Road Alliance, and we're, we're a private foundation that actually is focused exclusively on, on this topic of risk and philanthropy. Um, and for us, partnering with Foundation Center to, to get this collection out was really about testing one of our uh, sort of core um, the core findings that we have found through through our own work, you know, which is that fundamentally uh, foundations love to talk about taking risks and our sector likes to talk about taking risks, but nobody's actually doing it. Um, and this mm-hmm. this collection really underscored that, along with other research that we found, um, you know, even uh, survey research and other research we conducted independently. And I think your point about the, the board is so key because one of the things that we found in that this collection I think really highlights is that this this conversation about risk is really at its nascent stage for our sector. Um, it's sort of like the where the conversation around impact was 15 years ago. Right? Everybody right. is using that word, but nobody really knows what it means, and we don't really have a good way to measure it, and we don't really have – Agreement on what the nuanced difference of definitions and, and frameworks are. So, I'm really hopeful that this collection is going to help us to, to start bring, bringing some of that structure to this topic. Um, and in terms of Giving Tuesday, you know, I think it's, it's really relevant, um, and especially beyond Giving Tuesday and even into this holiday season and this traditional uh, charity season. one of the things that we hear every year is a refrain coming into this uh, charitable season is, uh, you know, be careful where you're giving, right? Check out, do your due diligence, research. um, And that, that conversation, the sort of charity watchdog conversation, you know, comes along with then calls from the sector saying, yes, yes, be careful about who you're giving, but don't look at overhead. Right? And, and don't worry about um, starvation cycle and these other things. And uh, one of the interesting things that I've found is that many of those conversations really do come back to risk. Uh, because when we're investing in philanthropy, it's really no different than investing our money anywhere else in the world. And we know that the number one rule of investing is that there's risk and reward. And if you don't know what your risk level is, if you don't know if you're a one or a five on that risk scale, you can't choose your investment. And there's no such thing as zero risk. And so I think one of the things that's missing from this conversation overall is that risk question, and uh, hopefully this will help get some answers.
4: Absolutely, and and I really applaud uh, this uh, gathering of information that you brought together because it's not trying to reinvent the wheel, it's trying to give context to work that has come before. Uh, And I would say that for any of our listeners today, if you're not taking risk, Um, If you're not managing risk, you're not working hard enough in the nonprofit sector, uh, because there are so many needs and so many people uh, who are in want. Uh, You need to look further, you need to work harder, but I think what you're giving us here in in this issue lab, um, and we did tweet that out today, um, is uh, a roadmap to where is some of the best thinking in this area, where is some of the work that's come before us. Particularly, again, on this show, we really try to focus on the smaller nonprofits that don't have access necessarily to, you know, big expensive consultants that, you know, can help them with with risk management. Oftentimes, they're small staffs that have to make a go of it with whatever they have. And now what the Foundation Center has done is sort of done that homework for you, brought all of that together in one easy searchable database. And I really want to applaud all of you for, uh, for the work that you've done. Thank
5: you, Ted. And just to even just draw one more example from that, in the collection, there are actually some articles with actual downloadable tools um, that nonprofits, small or or large, can take to uh, conduct a risk risk assessment. Um, So, to your point, people don't have to recreate the wheel and can leverage what's already been done.
4: That's great, and there's a really handy drop-down menu that you can go directly to certain categories that could be very important to you. We need to uh, move on to our Page 2 expert today. So, again, thank you, uh, Jen Bokoff, Director of Knowledge Services of Foundation Center, for bringing us uh, Gabby Fitz, the Foundation Center's Issue Lab Service, um, and Maya Winkelstein, who is uh, your partner at Open Road Alliance. Um, ladies, thank you so much for coming on the show today and giving us access to this very important service. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for having us. Take care, everyone. Uh, and next up, of course, is Age 2. It is my pleasure to welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, And uh, for those of you um, who are interested, we're also streaming live over on Facebook. Uh, You can join us at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. Penelope Burke is the president of Cygnus Applied Research. She's an author, researcher, and mentor. Uh, who is celebrated for some of the most important innovations in modern-day fundraising. Uh, In 2000, Penelope introduced the not-for-profit industry to the concept of donor-centered fundraising, transforming the way that the sector communicates with donors and bringing uh, fundraising in line with donor needs. And I think even more importantly um, is the focus that, uh, Penelope, uh, you have brought uh, to data, uh, the importance of making decisions uh, based on on data and not just sort of fundraising from the gut. Um, and your show here on the Nonprofit Coach each year is one of the most popular. So welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach, Penelope Burke.
0: Ted, thanks. It's great to be on your show again this year. Thank you so much.
4: Well, thank you for the research that you do. I know that this is, uh, is not necessarily easy every year because it is so uh, comprehensive. So just for uh, some of our newer listeners, I know the folks who have been with us for a while and have listened uh, to your podcast over the years, they're already familiar with how you put this survey together, uh, but you involve over 27,000 donors. Uh, How do you get so many donors involved in the study, and can you give us sort of the basics of what is the Burke Donor Survey?
0: Sure. Well, getting the numbers uh, uh, is pretty uh, challenging until we developed uh, a process of working with partners. So this year we reached out to not-for-profits all around the U.S. and Canada. So we do uh, two simultaneous surveys Uh, in both countries and produced two separate reports. A lot of the findings are similar, but there are some differences for sure. So in the American survey, we had 104 not-for-profit partners, and they reached out to over 1.8 million donors and asked them to go online and complete our anonymous survey. And uh, the uh, survey is quite long. There's 146 questions in this year's survey although no respondent had to answer every single question. uh, Still, it's not uncommon for them to be inside the survey for uh, 30 to 45 minutes and they stay and they answer those questions. So the other reason our our research study is so successful, besides the fact that we have these wonderful partners, many of whom come back year after year, um, is donors themselves. Uh, donors who support charitable organizations want them to be as successful as possible uh, they're very um, uh, uh, they, uh, philanthropy is very important to them, and so they will spend an inordinately long time in a research study if they feel that the results can help the charitable organizations they support and I think the third thing is we do something quite unusual we provide all donors who want it who come into the survey with a summary of the results absolutely free. So, um, and usually, you know, if uh, for uh, the fundraisers who are out there listening who are donors themselves, um, they will know that donors are often solicited for their opinions in uh, capital campaign feasibility studies and other research, but they very seldom know what the results of uh, of their efforts were but we want to make sure donors do know uh, because in most cases most questions we ask the response rates are extraordinarily high in one direction or another whereas donors um, often feel that you know they're doing their philanthropy independently they don't know what other donors think and they don't realize that that more more often than not they are part of a vast majority who are thinking the same way.
4: Mm-hmm. And that's very important for for the charities and the planning. One of the things that I think has really distinguished uh, your study year over year is that you've been able to identify trends, uh, both in identifying what, what is happening in the marketplace, but also to validate uh, trends. And I remember uh, you were one, uh, if not the first, one of the first to really be identifying that um, sort of our, our senior surfers online, our, our, our older donors that are, that are online, are in fact online, giving online, and that while that might be for some charities a population that um, you know, might be forgotten or not focused on, you said, no, hold on. Um, they are there and they're growing and it's important and they have uh, a particular profile. Um, So what is um, happening, what are the trends that you are seeing that's coming out of not only the 2016 Burke Donor Survey, but, again, you have that that longitudinal long-term view?
0: We do, and uh, that's what makes this uh, particularly fun for me. We've been doing the Burke Donor Survey since 2009 now, and uh, (laughs) fundraisers who were who were in the business back then, know how tough it was in that year. Uh, it was the hardest year post-recession uh, for fundraisers. Yeah. And initially well, it was also in somewhat 09. controversial.
4: Penelope, it was also oh. somewhat controversial at that point because people were saying, well, donors won't really uh, participate, we won't really learn anything, and you proved everybody wrong. Uh,
0: it was a huge response, and donors were looking for an opportunity to tell charitable organizations how they felt and also to send a message that year which is incredibly poignant that in spite of what was happening to them personally uh, business-wise and in spite of what was happening to older donors regarding uh, the investment loss that they were experiencing they would find the majority said they'd find a way somehow to keep supporting charitable organizations at at least the same level that they had given at the previous year, even if they had to pull the money out of the grocery budget. So it was an amazing uh, collection of information in 2009. I had not intended to do another survey, but it was so interesting that I wanted to follow up the, the next year. And then that survey brought forward even more information. And now, of course, we just do it annually because every year i 'm blown away by the number of donors we get, what they have to say, and I guess most important for your listeners, the accuracy of their findings so we're, right. we're at and, the and we 're right and they would be questions. terribly disappointed
4: if we 'd be terribly disappointed if you didn 't do the research because of what we learned you You mentioned mm-hmm. um, back in two thousand and nine sort of you know the, the starting point, but also a very pivotal year for proving that the, the Burke Donor Survey was looking at something unique and learning something unique. Um, can you tell us, is the economy still affecting donors giving decisions?
0: Not nearly as much, and uh, it, uh, although I'll have to say it depends on where donors live. So, for example, in Texas, uh, where there's oil dependency, of course, and the uh, price of oil has fallen dramatically, uh, uh, many more donors who live in Texas say that they had to control their spending on philanthropy or give less, and if we compare that with other states, there was a, a, a significant difference, So, but if I look overall at the national findings, um, from the point of view of whether or not the economy impacts philanthropy, we had the best possible finding uh, this year. Only 18% of all donors say, uh, say they gave less last year due to economic circumstances, uh, the lowest since we started surveying. If we go back to that infamous 2009 survey, that year 59% of donors said they gave less because of the economy, so it's an incredibly dramatic difference. But the economy affects donors in two ways. Some give less because they're hurting and they feel they have to pull back in their giving, but others give more even if they are personally hurting to make sure that the charities that they uh, really believe in are not and and especially the people that those charitable organizations help are not hurt mm-hmm. any further and so they are an amazing group and and in this current year's survey, eleven percent of donors said uh, they gave more because uh, of a poor economy mm.
4: and thinking again about about the economy you mentioned, regional differences. Um, particularly pulling out um, Texas and sort of the, the drop in oil and how that's affected people. What other regional differences are, are you seeing in this, um, uh, this particular survey that maybe is different from other years or was particularly important to you?
0: You know, it's funny we look at that because we do ask everybody where they live. And um, we run all the demographics and the answers to questions on how much donors gave last year and are planning to give this year. Um, And we found that was the only area where region did make a difference. But there were other demographic questions that were hugely impactful on survey results. And at the top of the list was age there are dramatic differences. If I look at just three ages, uh, three age groups, you know, we could cut it all kinds of ways, but if I look only at donors, let's say over the age of 70, uh, middle-aged donors between 40 and 69, and donors under 40, there are dramatic differences in uh, how much they're giving, how they prefer to give, where they think their future is headed in philanthropy, and it's really interesting And I'd say that um, we're focusing less attention on the youngest donors, particularly donors under the age of 35, mostly because their gift values are just a small fraction of what middle-aged donors in similar economic circumstances are giving. So uh, in our analysis this year, our young donors who are employed when I compared uh, employed young donors under 35 with employed middle-aged donors, both of whom were living in households with similar gross incomes, uh, the young donors were making gifts that were only about 18% of the value of middle-aged donors. And okay. with the so way is the that, fun- is that fundraising- really works. Is, yeah. is, that, is that really surprising though, given
4: what we understand about the life cycle of a donor?
0: it's well if other factors are equal it should be surprising but then there are two other big factors that um make this understandable one is student debt which is enormous uh and the second is underemployment so among okay. uh young people uh among uh, households headed by someone under 40 where there is no student debt you know the household net value is about 86,000. And with student debt, it's only about 8,000. So there, it's such oh. a significant difference. Um, and underemployment weighs heavily on young people. I mean, they're, right. they're in there. It, underemployment is more insidious than uh, unemployment, actually. But there's right. good news on this side. And the good news okay. is uh, in about five years, the picture is going to be quite different Because when I look at the volume of people retiring and who are, you know, the baby boom generation are hanging into the workforce somewhat longer uh, than uh, the average age of retirement now is about 66, 67. And that's because boomers are trying to recover some of their lost investment value from the most recent recession. But time Mm -hmm. catches up with everybody, (laughs) whether we like it or not. Right. And so right. uh, uh, boomers are, are retiring in greater numbers every year than we've seen before. Uh, and, and are they as a result, donors?
4: Are they, are they continuing a focus on charitable oh, works yes. in retirement? Yes, okay. yes.
0: They, they're they not uh, – that isn't stopping. Uh, and they're bringing their sort of middle-aged uh, uh, behavior patterns into their older years, which is changing the face or is going to change the face of fundraising Uh, Quite dramatically, and I'd say um, the number one issue there or observation we have is that middle aged donors support about half the number of causes that older donors support. I'm not talking about amount of money, just number of causes. And a lot of the, yeah, that's right, a lot of the fundraising business is built on volume. So on the actually mistaken assumption that the more donors you have the more money you will make but that's in fact not true Um, and when uh, a big chunk of the fundraising industry is in the direct marketing arena that depends on volume uh, they're in for a bit of shock uh, in um, well it's already started but it will become more dramatic over the next few years as middle-aged donors whose philosophy about giving is that if I support fewer causes I can make more generous gifts to each cause that I do support and that's a better way to give and they're actually quite smart about that because they know that it costs a charitable organization the same to get you know a hundred dollars out of them as it does to get a thousand dollars out of them So um, looking at net value of a gift, um, the the net value of the larger gift gets more accomplished on the ground. So they have to make a choice somewhere. Now, many donors just give more money, which is great, and you can influence donors to give more generously than even they think they can give. Uh, But uh, still, donors feel they're working within a budget, And so the majority now, or an increasing number, I should say, every year has chosen to go the fewer causes, higher gift value route. Now, Mm -hmm. that's great for organizations with uh, sophisticated, diversified fundraising operations and a robust major gifts program. But for organizations who are overly reliant on volume-based direct marketing or large-scale fundraising events that bring in a little money from a lot of people they're going to need to diversify and to do it quickly because dramatic changes are on the way. Are on the way. But, you know, that's a message
4: that, that in, in sort of fundraising conferences and fundraising circles uh, has been tried to be pushed for several years. And I sort of feel that, you know, charities that are not getting that message really need to listen to this particular Burke uh, donor survey because donors are speaking loudly through your survey that that's a trend that we've seen and you're saying that the, the speed of that engine uh, is even growing. And I wonder, um, Penelope, if um, that sort of less, fewer um, charities, higher amounts also has a correlation to the dramatic growth of donor-advised funds which allow people to sort of bank dollars, give give to a charity when they want to as opposed to necessarily responding to an urgent appeal or an appeal that comes in uh, through the post, but um, it it sounds to me that that middle class has sort of um, defined the way that that donors are giving for a period of time, and and certainly an outgrowth of that has been the dramatic increase in the use of donor advised funds.
0: Uh, Donor advised funds and what's happening with giving overall has already had uh, a dramatic impact uh, but it's going to get much bigger as time goes on. Uh, Seventeen, what was it? Yeah, 17% of the donors in our study said that they didn't respond to any fundraising appeals whatsoever uh, this year, and uh, uh, the majority of those donors said it's because they put their philanthropic budget into a donor advised fund. So yeah. that's yeah. that's an area we're going to do more research on. Um, over the years, but that number is climbing exponentially. And as you hinted, um, uh, donors are putting more and money, more and more money into those donor advised funds, but the gifts are not necessarily coming out at the other end of the fund at the same rate. And so it yeah. is holding, it, it's holding cash based giving back uh, from charitable organizations, and it's making donors harder harder to reach so if uh, a donor who's put their the philanthropic yeah. mm-hmm.
4: well I, I was just gonna say but also giving donors the time to be thoughtful careful planners in their philanthropy and I think that is changing the dynamic of what it means to be a fundraiser where it used to be campaign-based it used to be time-based you know give now give to this campaign um, and what you're showing is there's a percentage in your survey that are sort of impervious to that and part of it is because they've already given a gift they've already gotten their tax deduction and now they can be more thoughtful in how they give and, and as you know i i am ceo of a donor advised fund calf america's donor advised fund which has grown 168 percent in the last four years and i'll just make a, a note um, to our listeners that Um, You know, to connect to a donor advised fund seems complicated uh, because you cannot solicit a donor advised fund that has a lot of money. But the key is the same key that you've always had, and that is to build a relationship with donors that have a donor advised fund. And one of the things that I've been promoting, which uh, I'm hoping that fundraisers are starting to get the message from, is are you asking your donors if they have a donor advised fund? Are you showing yourself? to be donor-advised fund savvy and friendly. Because the great thing about a donor-advised fund is the money is already given, all the donor has to do is advise it to you. So part of the work is already done for you. You don't have to sell them on the notion of giving. They've already done that. Now what you have to do is help convince them that you're the cause that they should advise the gift to.
0: That is such a critical observation and to jump off that and we see this in our research too that donors in that situation are open to communication less open to solicitation but very open That's to right. to information so exactly. um, organizations that are very specific about why they're raising money they engage in designated fund fundraising rather than undesignated or unrestricted um, they never solicit, resolicit a donor until they have provided them with good information on what their last gift accomplished, and right. um, they're very astute at communications and marketing because that's the way and, to and reach donors. And if you donors. find out
4: that you have a donor. Who has, if you've asked the question, you're a very smart, savvy 2016-2017 fundraiser, and you have thought to ask, and you know that you have a donor who has given to you, who has an account at Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard or Calf America uh, or a host of, of other donor advised funds, you now can have a discussion with them, not about will they give. They already have. Wh- whether or not they will be philanthropic, they already are. The question is, and the donor now, and I think this ties into, uh, another theme that you that that, uh, that you've tracked is the interest in communication, the interest in impact, and I think what we're seeing is a donor class now that is prepared and desirous of taking their time to be thoughtful to to ponder what they would like to accomplish, and then to connect and give to charities that are going to meet that that demand because they don't they're not caught up in the decision of whether or not they're going to give, and in fact, they already know how much is in their donor-advised fund, so they know how much they can give. The question is where?
0: So interesting. And if you look at donors with donor-advised funds and all donors, uh, no matter how they're giving, in our survey this year, we found that 79% said they research or investigate causes before they give for the first time and before they give again. So they have become more serious, more determined, very strategic about their giving. And it's actually a good thing. Uh, We've run tests on donors who more passively just respond to an appeal without doing research. And donors who get an appeal, regardless of how it comes at them, whether it's electronic or print, and then say, oh, that's interesting, and then go to a not-for-profits website to check them out further. And when you look at those two groups of donors, Donors who do their research on top of the alert that comes from a not-for-profit through an appeal tend to follow through and give at a higher rate, that's, and their gift values are more generous as well.
4: That's right. That's right. And, 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 of course, it's so much easier today for donors to do that research and be able to do it on their own and not necessarily have to rely on others um, because of the Internet. So I think all of these right. topics and all these trends that we're talking about, they're, they're not separate, and they don't, they don't run on separate tracks. The fact that donor-advised funds are growing, the fact that donors want more information, the fact that donors are doing more research, and the fact that, as you're saying, that, that sort of middle donor um, is giving to fewer charities but giving larger gifts – they're being more careful, they're being more strategic in their giving, and that, of course, goes back to the point that I'm making is sort of the value of what is a donor-advised fund and why they're growing. Nobody has to give to a donor-advised fund. Nobody's out there forcing donors to give to donor-advised funds. It's because it meets a need that they have and that they don't necessarily have the capacity to create a foundation where they can put money together and be thoughtful and strategic, it allows them to basically have a virtual foundation for themselves and their family, where now they can also have the benefit that so many very wealthy donors have had to sit back and to be thoughtful and to be careful and possibly to bank money over time because they would like to make a larger gift, they would like to be more impactful in their giving and not necessarily just be responsive, Uh, to the last request that came in through their post box. Um, We're going to take a quick break, um, Penelope, um, as you sort of ponder that. Uh, We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll have about 15 minutes left, and I want to make sure that we focus in on a topic that's very important to a lot of our listeners, um, and that is the topic of social media. And what are you learning from donors about the use of social media uh, by nonprofits? And we'll be right back. (laughs)
6: Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? Well, we all have, because we're busy, and because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now, introducing Virtue, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtue is easy to install and use. And it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded, and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves... Remember, our podcasts and archives
3: are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart.
4: And grab your calendars. I want to make sure that you mark on your calendar the last two shows of this calendar year here on the Nonprofit Coach, we will be back live on December 13th with Rob Mitchell, uh, who is going to be sharing us the latest information on the Atlas of Giving and, of course, his uh, uh, projection of what giving is going to look like in 2017. Then we round out, as we always do, our producer always makes sure that one of our most popular guests here on the Nonprofit Coach winds up every year with our holiday show, on December 20th. And of course, who else could that be but the wonderful Kay Sprinkle Grace, uh, who will be back here as she always is to round out our calendar year. We're back here now live with Penelope Burke. Um, Our topic today is the 2016 Burke Donor Survey. Before we went on the break, uh, Penelope, um, I brought up this issue of social media. It's so important. We've seen um, its utilization, political campaigns, fundraising campaigns. What do donors think about nonprofits' use of social media? Hmm.
0: So I'll say first that we did social media research the first time in 2011, so now five years later, we've gone back to the same questions, asked them again, and there are some big differences. So five years ago, only 43% of our respondents who had one or more social media accounts followed any not-for-profits, and today, 80%. So it's a massive jump, and uh, you know, good uh, kudos. Uh, to charitable organizations who have made their social pres- the media presence known with their donors. So that's really terrific. Um, some things have moved way ahead. Others have not. So when we ask donors uh, this year what inspires them to follow a not-for-profit on social media, way out in front ahead of any other response, 66% said they post relevant updates on their work. And by relevance, donors mean that their not-for-profits are accountable. Uh, They're talking specifically about programs, services, projects that they run, not just about the organization as a whole. Uh, They're describing how they do their work, what has changed in the last year or whatever space of time, and how donors have made a difference, how, how donors have partnered with them to make their work Uh, bigger, better, uh, more modernized, whatever the case may be. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, at 45%, is that social media allows uh, donors to see images of what organizations that they follow are doing. So, of course, if you set out rules for yourself with social media, Certainly one of the platforms you need to be active on must be an image-based platform because this is really, really big for donors. They also want to know like, what's coming up. Uh, so uh, donors go to uh, social media to see what uh, charitable organizations um, have in the way of upcoming events. Uh, and there's some cautionary information too. When we asked, well, why would you follow one not for profit that you give to but not another? And they mm-hmm. say, well, we prefer to follow not for profits that don't over communicate, which is really fascinating. And that's So you really uh, I mean, sometimes... it, but what does
4: that means. <laughs> you, you have us all on, on the edge of our seat because, of course, every nonprofit want, now wants to know what's too much.
0: Well, um, this is maybe our biggest area of research um, uh, because it has the most significant implications uh, for fundraising success. So, this, uh, what I'm going to say now applies to social media, but it applies to all forms of communication because it is so quick and so relatively inexpensive to communicate electronically. And because donors admit that they prefer electronic to print communication in most circumstances, um, we found that overcommunication has um, usurped over-solicitation as the number one irritation for donors that caused them to stop giving. And so, of course, I'm always asked, well, How many times should we contact a donor? What's appropriate? What's too many? What's too few? And um, (laughs) the answer from donors is that when you have something meaningful to say, we want to hear it, and we want to hear it right away. And social media has that added advantage of immediacy, uh, quick sound bites of information that can be transmitted very quickly. But donors... Also say that if you're telling me the same thing over and over again, then I'm not interested. And mm-hmm. uh, they just uh, they blank out quite quickly if they're being asked to pay attention to something they already knew because you communicated it yesterday or earlier today or last week. Uh, we see uh, We're seeing that right now, of course, uh, anybody with uh, any kind of account. <laughs> who has um, mistakenly given over their email address to a retail store, are being bombarded several times a day with exactly. information on what they should be buying. And you just turn off. You just As soon as you see the name of the company, you just delete it. So what we're finding through the research we do with individual clients is that when um, we, of course, we do this national research study, but we also – will contract with an individual client to survey their donors and our clients who communicate and solicit prolifically get very low response rates on our survey if the request to participate comes from the client and as soon as the request comes from my company the response rate goes up now that's the opposite of what should happen because people should be more eager to communicate with the charity they support than with a third-party research company like mine. But it's an indicator that overcommunication is simply blocking what you're trying to transmit completely from the donor. So we may have very large um, numbers of email addresses and um, uh, social media accounts, and we're sending out information, but that doesn't mean donors are receiving it. It's getting blocked by their own server, it's getting dumped by the donor before it's being read, and it's not. And sometimes it's not even getting past, uh, getting to the server. So it's having um, a big negative impact in the testing that we're doing now on what communications work most effectively. Um, it's all about quality. If you have something important to say. And you can say it initially in 15 words or less with a link to your website. That is your number one advantage to communicating in a world where everyone is being bombarded by communication from all fronts. So, you, and, and without getting your message heard, you can't inspire donors to give for the first time or give again. And so, right. calming down on so you volume need, you of need communication. Really be thoughtful.
4: You need to be thoughtful and have a plan Absolutely. rather than just in a habit of sending, sending out everything that you can think of, hoping that something will stick.
0: Yes, and, and taking a different tact, not how can I communicate with my donors today, but should I communicate with my donors today or should I just leave them alone? What? People need time to think. And if the communication you had sent before was powerful, exciting, Uh, concise, fascinating, um, then it will stay in donors' minds. Uh, And Mm. given time to think about it, you've already equipped those donors with what they need to know when you get around to asking them to give again.
4: Well, and one of the things that we've shared many times here on this show, uh, Penelope, is the difference between fundraising and inspiring action. And that in, in today's social media world, It's less about making the ask and more about inspiring action both on that donor, but in the social media world, will your message get shared? Will it get posted? Will other people see it who are not on your list? And that takes uh, a skill of inspiring action as opposed to just asking one person for a gift.
0: Mm -hmm. That's true. Now, these numbers are still small, but when we asked um, our respondents who follow at least one cause – how following influences giving uh, to that same organization. Uh, 17% this year said they now give more often because they follow a cause on social media, and 8% make larger gifts. Now, those numbers are small, but five years ago, those numbers were 9% and 1%, respectively. So there's been right, significant right. growth in the last five years.
4: Yeah, and it, and, it, and it does make a difference um, in terms of how you communicate and, again, inspiring that action. So somebody who's following you, someone who is, is responding in that way, clearly has been inspired to do so uh, because they're, they're not required to and there's nothing to do. And I think that's a very different skill than getting someone to give you their email address and then bombarding them with email.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, 60% of our respondents who follow said they endorse. Uh, charitable organizations that they believe in on their um, to their own followers uh, which is really critical and within that within the group of followers there is this small relatively small number about 18 percent who are mass influencers so and you can easily recognize them and they can be very helpful to you in your fundraising efforts they're the people who retweet everything you tweet. Uh, they're the people mm-hmm. with very large groups of followers. They're very active. They, um, they want to know what you're doing. They'll attend an event. They'll offer to volunteer. Uh, they, uh, they'll contact you um, without being asked to find out more about what you're accomplishing with the work that you do because they are actively communicating that out to their network. So, if you look at these mass influencers in the same way that in fundraising we look at major gift donors, who That's are right. small in number but hugely, hugely influential on the bottom line. Very mark. influential. It's the same thing yep, in social other media. because other people listen to them. Other people follow them.
4: Uh, listen, Penelope. Yep. Unfortunately, our time together is always so short. We could do several shows with you. You're always so fascinating. Your research is so important. Um, we've only got about two minutes left. I wanted to ask you to do two things. One is you're currently accepting partners, I believe, for the 2017 um, study. So how can people get involved with that? Uh, and how can my listeners reach you?
0: They uh, To um, sign up as a partner for next year, go to our, res- uh, our website, which is cygresearch.com. And right off the home page, there's a quick link to two things. One, information for partners to see if you qualify. And we're busy accruing partners right now for our 2017 uh, survey that will start in February. And second, if you want to know more about what we found, you can download the executive summary of each research study from 2009 to 2016, or you can buy the whole thing if you want. Um, so I'll I'll end with maybe one of our best statistics of all. Every okay. year we ask we ask every donor in the second to last question of each research study. Last year, did you give all that you could, or did you leave money on the table? Did you hold your philanthropy back? And this year, 31% of donors said, "Oh, they could have given more, and they held their philanthropy back." Uh, and then when we looked at the youngest do- donors in the survey, it was even better. Uh, 55% of donors under the age of 35 said they could have given more last year. That's where you should be concentrating your effort for all the success that, charitable, um, that fundraisers have in raising billions of dollars every year, there's still a lot Penelope, more money out there.
4: Penelope, thank you. I do have to, I, unfortunately, I do have to end end the show. Hope for the future. Thank you so much. There's more money on the table, and more importantly, Penelope Burke will be back to share next year's research. So become part of that. Thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach.
0: Thanks, Ted. Bye for now.
3: You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty,